The U.S. Supreme Court is under pressure to rule quickly on issues that could affect the outcome of next year's presidential election, among them the states of Maine and Colorado's decisions that prevent Donald Trump from appearing on the state ballots. Today is Friday, December 29th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Congress made a lot of noise this year, but lawmakers didn't manage to pass much legislation. Only 27 bills passed through both chambers. This year, people across the U.S. learned that wildfire smoke is a problem not just confined to the West. We'll take a look at where the worst fires happened and how. Also, film critic Bob Mondello on the best films of 2023. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Russia launched a massive air assault on Ukraine today, killing dozens and prompting an international response. Poland says its airspace was breached. Britain is providing 200 air defense missiles to Ukraine. And President Biden is calling on Congress to provide more military aid and fast as Ukraine funding dries up. NPR's Asma Khalid reports. In its latest barrage, Russia fired more than 100 missiles at Ukraine. In a statement, President Biden described it as the largest aerial assault on Ukraine since the war began. And he said the air defense systems that the United States and allies had sent to Ukraine helped intercept many of the missiles and save lives. But he also warned of the risks of not providing more help. The stakes of this fight, he said, extend far beyond Ukraine. They affect the entire NATO alliance and the security of Europe. Some Republican lawmakers have been unwilling to approve more Ukraine aid unless the White House also makes concessions on immigration and border policy. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The Iowa caucuses kick off the presidential primaries next month, but whether the leading Republican candidate is even eligible may be taken up by the Supreme Court. Former President Donald Trump's role in the insurrection has led multiple states to consider and decide differently on challenges. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has vetoed a bill banning transgender minors from receiving gender-affirming care and preventing transgender girls from participating in girls' sports. DeWine says he listened to both sides and decided to break with his own Republican Party. Were House Bill 68 to become law, Ohio would be saying that the state, that the government, knows better what is medically best for a child than the two people who love that child the most, the parents. GOP lawmakers in Ohio hold enough seats to override DeWine's veto. Google has settled a class action lawsuit that claimed it tracked users' private browsing data. NPR's Dara Kerr reports. When someone uses Google's Chrome browser in what's called incognito mode, they assume everything is private. But lawyers who sued Google on behalf of possibly millions of people say this isn't true. The lawsuit alleged that Google secretly tracks people using incognito mode and collects their data, meaning the search giant could learn about people's hobbies, shopping habits, and, quote, potentially embarrassing things. Google tried to get the lawsuit dismissed, saying it warns users their activity might still be visible. The judge rejected that bid. A trial was set to begin in February, but the two parties reached a preliminary settlement. The terms of the deal were not disclosed, but the lawsuit initially sought at least $5 billion. Dara Kerr, NPR News. 
This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Officials at a hospital in Newburyport said today they're working to recover from a cybersecurity incident that affected some of their systems. Anna Jake's hospital remains open. The Newburyport Daily News reports the breach required the facility to divert ambulances on Christmas Day. The hospital says it's investigating the breach. A group of researchers at the Harvard Graduate School of Education are exploring whether generative AI technologies can be a useful teaching tool. As WBR's Carrie Young reports, when it comes to providing student feedback, there are positive results. The study focused on a graduate-level class where students were tasked with creating new educational tools in a makerspace. Typically, writing individualized feedback that keeps students engaged and encouraged is time-consuming. Study author Guyan Kelly Sung says overall, students responded positively to the AI-augmented feedback. People felt like these AI-augmented messages were spearheading like a caring classroom culture. And what we found was that statistically it had a significant impact on the sense of student belonging and their levels of burnout. The tool was less effective for students who reportedly struggled. Sung says this study was limited, but her group hopes to expand on what they learned. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Cape Cod residents can now recycle broken or unwanted strands of holiday lights. A Barnstable County program will strip the lights of plastic and recycle the metals inside so they can be used for other electronics. Program coordinator Carrie Parcell says last winter people donated about four tons of lights to be recycled. When they pull out their lights and they're broken and they think, oh my gosh, what do I do? And instead of trashing it, they have a place to take them. And I think that makes us feel a lot better about you know, decorating and having to buy new lights. All municipal transfer stations in Barnstable County will accept lights through the end of January. The lights have to be stripped off any decoration first. 45 degrees in the Boston area. Light rain off and on through the evening and overnight tonight, staying right about uh, 40 degrees overnight. Tomorrow should reach the mid-40s again, heavy on the clouds. Sunshine should emerge for the final day of the year on Sunday, right back around 40 degrees. 45 in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heifer International, where people can donate animal gifts like goats, chickens, or sheep to struggling families to help them create sustainable futures. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Supreme Court is being asked to consider an existential question about Donald Trump. Should the former president be disqualified from the ballot next year because of his role in the January 6th riot? That is just one of the disputes the justices may be forced to weigh in on in 2024. With us to talk about the other cases is NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Juana. So, Carrie, last night, an official in the state of Maine booted Donald Trump from the Republican primary ballot following a similar ruling from a court in the state of Colorado. How is this issue making its way to the Supreme Court? My issue said Maine Secretary of State has disqualified Trump from the GOP ballot because she found he engaged in insurrection for the purposes of the 14th Amendment. The Republican Party in Colorado has already asked the high court to weigh in after a Colorado court also yanked Trump from the ballot this month. Voters in that state are asking the justices to move very quickly. Time is of the essence here because there's now a conflict among states that have considered the idea of whether Trump should appear on the ballot in 2020. Right. And Carrie, what are the threshold questions for the Supreme Court? 
That provision of the 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War to keep Confederates out of office. One big question is, does it apply to the office of the president? Does Congress need to take action, or can a state official disqualify a candidate on their own? And does a former official need to be convicted of a crime before any of this applies? Legal scholars disagree. Here's how election expert David Becker put it to Morning Edition today. It's essential that a clear ruling is issued by the United States Supreme Court as soon as possible, not just for uh, the voters, but also for election officials who are starting to print ballots up for the primaries, and also for the Republican Party that needs to know whether or not it has a candidate that is qualified to serve as president of the United States. And Kerry, former President Trump's other legal problems could also wind up on the court docket in the next couple of weeks. Tell us what you're watching. Special counsel Jack Smith, who's prosecuting Trump for allegedly trying to overturn the last election, had asked the Supreme Court to fast-track a key issue in his case. Trump says he has absolute immunity from prosecution because he was president at the time of January 6th. The Supreme Court rejected the effort to leapfrog a lower court and decide that issue now. But after the appeals court in D.C. rules, maybe as soon as the end of January or February, one or both sides may ask the high court to consider the issue again. Now, it's possible the court will just let the appeals court ruling stand, but many justices have been interested in the scope of presidential power, so they may want to take up the case. And this all matters because the trial has been set for March. If there's a long delay, it's possible the trial may not start until the heart of the summer, which coincides with the Republican Party convention. That's right. And Carrie, I mean, the Supreme Court has weathered a lot of controversy this year after ethics scandals involving some of the justices. Public opinion about the court has plunged after the court took away the right to abortion last term. And now all of this, it's going to put the court back in the spotlight, right? Absolutely. The court may try to stay out of some of these issues. It could duck that immunity question and also rule narrowly in a separate case about what constitutes obstruction of an official proceeding. That's a charge prosecutors have used 300 times against Capitol Ryers, and Trump faces two related charges as well. But it's hard to see how the Supreme Court stays out of election matters altogether. It's in a position where it might decide the outcome of the next election, and public confidence in the court is a lot more negative now than it was in 2000 when the court stopped the recount of that election in Florida and handed the White House to George W. Bush. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thanks as always. My pleasure. It's been a wild ride for cryptocurrencies in 2023. One major twist was the conviction of Sam Bankman freed on money laundering and fraud charges. He was once one of the biggest names in crypto. Now he might spend the rest of his life in prison. And law enforcement is going after some of his rivals. Despite this crackdown, crypto is staging something of a comeback. NPR's David Gura is here with a look at where things stand in the world of crypto. Hey, David. Hey, Ari. What else shaped this year in crypto? You know, it's been an incredible couple of years. Going back to 2022, I'm sure you remember crypto seemed to be everywhere then. When you're watching TV, there were all these ads for crypto companies. One of the big ones featured Larry David, the comedian. It was for the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, and it aired for the first time during the Super Bowl. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. Well, that line uh, now seems pretty prescient. FTX collapsed spectacularly in November of 2022. Yeah. And this year, it's been going through bankruptcy proceedings. Its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, was found guilty of fraud and money laundering. 
And this is what U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said outside the federal courthouse in Manhattan after that verdict. The cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. This kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time, and we have no patience for it. You know, this was a pivotal moment in crypto, a dramatic fall from grace for Sam Bankman-Fried, someone who was once called crypto's golden boy. And, you know, a lot of people thought that blockbuster trial, that verdict would shape popular perception of digital currencies, that it would kind of reinforce what law enforcement and regulators have been saying, that this is an industry that's rife with fraud. Well, turns out, Ari, that verdict was not crypto's death knell. Yeah, tell us about what happened. Believe it or not, after that conviction, we saw this huge rally in cryptocurrencies. The price of Bitcoin has tripled this year. It's now above $40,000. Turns out a lot of crypto true believers and Bitcoin investors saw that conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried as a good thing for crypto. A fraudster faced justice and crypto got rid of a bad actor. This year has been a boon to companies that have survived a market downturn that has come to be called a crypto winter. Coinbase, for instance, another big cryptocurrency exchange, has surged in 2023. Its stock is up around 400 percent this year. And then there's this hope driving prices higher that the SEC could approve a new ETF. These are funds that track things like a group of stocks or an index. A common one tracks the S&P 500's ups and downs. Well, several companies want to start ETFs that would track the price of Bitcoin. And I asked Kevin Warbach, who's a professor at Wharton, why that would be significant. It would potentially open up the door to lots and lots of people who say, look, I don't buy this entire crypto story, but Bitcoin sounds interesting. And if the SEC approves it, a Bitcoin ETF would be another way into crypto, Ari, and it would also give crypto some more legitimacy. Huh. So where do you think things are headed in 2024? Of course, I don't know for sure. But clearly, if the SEC approves that new investment product, it would be another big moment in crypto's still pretty short history. What we do know is that regulators and law enforcement are going to continue to go after crypto. Just a few weeks after Sam Bankman-Fried was convicted, the Department of Justice announced a major settlement with Binance, which was... Once one of FTX's competitors, Binance's founder, now former CEO Cheng Peng Zhao, who's better known as CZ, pleaded guilty to violating anti-money laundering laws. So we have two of what were the biggest names in crypto now facing prison time. I asked the acting assistant attorney general, Nicole Argentieri, what law enforcement's approach to crypto is going to be in the new year? And here's what she told me. Thanks for that question. I would say stay tuned, but we expect to continue our robust enforcement. So that means in 2024, there's likely to be more of this tension we've seen this year between crypto trying to stage a comeback and the government continuing this clampdown. Okay, my last question is, why do these crypto titans all go by their initials? SBF, CZ, what's going on? That is a great, that's a great question, and it doesn't make it any easier for me to keep track of them. NPR's David Gura. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ari. Public libraries around the country have put together lists of books most borrowed by readers in 2023. NPR's Netta Ulabi tells us more. Let's start with the country's biggest library. Hi there, I'm Emily Pullen. I'm the manager of reader services for the New York Public Library. We had Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus as our number one checkout. The novel tells the story of a chemist in the early 1960s who's dismissed because of her gender. She ends up hosting a cooking show. We're live in five, four. It was made into a series on Apple TV+. Welcome, viewers. This is Supper at Six. Lessons in Chemistry was also the most borrowed book at public libraries in Seattle, Boston, and Cleveland. However, in Topeka, Kansas, it was not even on the top 10. Readers there preferred mysteries, thrillers, and what's getting called romanticy. Romanticy is this new phrase that they've come up with for romance and fantasy. 
Deb Lambert directs collections at the Indianapolis Public Library. She says romanticy is big there, too. With books like Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. It was also among the most borrowed in Charleston, South Carolina, and Louisville, Kentucky, thanks in part to fan videos on TikTok. They have to be endgame, right? They have to be. Their dragons are mated. Not every library lists its most borrowed books. And there's no big list from, say, the American Library Association. Most borrowed, says Deb Lambert, can get sliced into fiction, nonfiction, young adult, audio. And also, whether it was an ebook or a physical book. The number one most borrowed ebook in 2023 nationally on the app Libby was a memoir. Once upon a time, this was going to be my forever home. Prince Harry, Duke of Sussex, reading from Spare about his former estate. When my wife and I fled this place in fear for our sanity and physical safety, I wasn't sure when I'd ever come back. Library users have turned not just to e-books, but e-magazines. Deb Lambert says their rise in popularity is dramatic. Our New Yorker e-magazine was actually the most checked out title of everything online. In 2023, in Indianapolis, the New Yorker was bigger than Spare. Bigger than Lessons in Chemistry. By a pretty good amount, yep. Lessons in Chemistry had a total of 6,300 checkouts, and New Yorker Magazine was 6,800 checkouts. There's an important function to these most borrowed lists, librarians say. They remind us there's something wonderful to read every year for everyone. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 15 minutes, climate change is fueling bigger wildfires and the smoke is leading to growing health risks. The research coming out clearly shows that wildfire smoke is more toxic than air pollution from other sources. In 2015, wildfire smoke has wiped out about two decades of improvement in air quality since 2015. That story and much more still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. The main indices lost some ground on Wall Street on this last trading day of the year. The Dow fell a small fraction. S&P was down nearly three-tenths of a percent today. Even so, the S&P rose nearly 25 percent this year. And the Nasdaq today lost more than a half percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks. Creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. And Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974, in Cambridge, Brighton, and at CambridgeNaturals.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 
Light rain off and on this evening and overnight tonight, staying at about 40 degrees overnight, same as last night. Tomorrow should reach the mid-40s tops, heavy on the clouds, and then sunshine should emerge for the final day of the year, right back around 40 degrees on Sunday. A fair share of clouds around on Sunday night, New Year's Eve, and then New Year's Day Monday should be partly sunny, still about 40 degrees. 45 now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As we head into the new year, maybe you have a few things on your to-do list that have been there for months. Well, we have some tips to help you clear through that list and maybe even jumpstart those New Year's resolutions. NPR Life Kits host Mariel Segarra spoke with some experts about how to write and tackle a to-do list to make it work for you. So to-do lists, they're a tool we use to get stuff done, right? And I mean, how good does it feel when you finally cross off that task that's been hanging over your head? But warning, to-do lists can also become a trap. They can feed our impulse to stay productive at all times. The thing is, we don't want to make a better to-do list just so we can indiscriminately accomplish more. It's about doing what matters. That's Angel Trinidad, the CEO and founder of Passion Planner, a company that makes digital and paper planners that show people how to break down their goals into day-to-day actions. You can access a free version of the planner on their website. So takeaway number one in making a better to-do list, as Angel was saying, decide what matters to you in this moment. Because wouldn't it be great to fill our to-do lists with intention so the stuff on them is actually helping us get somewhere? One way to do this is to come up with a big-picture goal. Something that's especially important to you right now. Something that would make a big impact in your life. Angel calls it a game changer. What is that one thing that would make everything easier, better? And that answer is different for everyone. To come up with that goal, ask yourself some questions. What do I want to be? What do I want to experience? And what do I want to have? Maybe you want to be more present in your physical body. If so, your goal could be to run a 5K. Or maybe you want to give back to your community. So your goal is to volunteer once a week. First, though, I want to acknowledge this goal-making approach might feel kind of top-down. Like, maybe you don't have a big-picture goal in mind yet. And that's okay. Oliver Berkman is a journalist and author. He wrote the book 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. That's how many weeks are in the average human life, by the way. And he says another option is to let your current to-do list guide you. There are various exercises, aren't there? Like you might know the one that involves asking why five times in succession. For instance, my to-do list says retile kitchen floor. Oliver says I could work backwards from there. So like I want to retile my floor. Why? To make that room look better. Why? And, you know, eventually you hopefully get to something that feels like a bedrock value of your life. And if you don't, maybe that's a sign that it's a kind of a zombie project that could be easily abandoned. Once you have a sense of your priorities and your goals, it's time for takeaway two. Pick a system, a way of making a to-do list that works for you. One question to get you started, paper or digital? 
Angel says some people like paper to-do lists because they're concrete and tactile. And what I also love about to-do lists on paper is when you cross it off, there's nothing like it. Also, paper comes to an end. When you put it digitally, there's no end. You can keep going. And I think that's when to-do lists get really overwhelming. It's kind of like a cluttered room. When it's too much, then you just avoid it completely. Digital has its pluses, though. If you make a to-do list on your phone, it's searchable and quite possibly more organized. Another question to ask yourself, how do you want to structure your to-do list? Some people prefer a kind of calendar approach with the hours of the day listed. I like to time block on my agenda, and it's literally making a square of time for the task. So, you know, Thursday from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., I'll be working on my novel. Wednesday from 7 to 8 p.m., I'll be at soccer practice. This method is called time boxing, and it can be a good way to understand how much you can realistically tackle in a day, since you're visually blocking off time for each of your to-dos. That kind of awareness gets you thinking, am I spending my time in a way that makes sense for me and what my intention is for my life? But again, this is about finding a system that works for you. For Oliver, trying to plan this way feels too rigid. I've never really found it works to make a very rigorous association between a task and the time of day because my moods, my responsibilities as a parent, random emergencies that arise, you just can't sort of say, I'm absolutely going to be doing this thing between 3 and 3.40. You have to with appointments and things, but if you try and do it with everything, very quickly it feels imprisoning. It feels like life isn't, isn't any fun anymore, even if you're working on things that matter. So another option is a straight-up list of tasks. Call me old-fashioned, but that's what I'm sticking with. Remember, by the way, whatever you pick, it's just a starting point. An important thing here is to feel like your systems for organizing your life can evolve constantly. Now, once you have a system in mind, take away three, it's time to fill your list. Let's start with an acknowledgement. There are some things you just have to get done. The tasks of daily living. Refill that prescription. Buy groceries. Get more toilet paper. Those tasks can go on your to-do list, but they don't necessarily have to. There's this thing within the productivity world called the two-minute rule. And it's if it takes less than two minutes, just do it right then and there. You know, it's not worth spending the bandwidth to... Write it down, hopefully remember it, hopefully do it. Okay, so we're meeting our daily needs. Now we want to reflect our bigger goals on our to-do list. Like maybe one of mine is to redecorate my apartment. The thing is, and this is what trips a lot of people up, that's not a to-do list item. So often things hang around on our to-do lists and we don't get them done because we're not even expressing them in a doable form. Let's break this down. Which parts of the apartment do I want to redecorate? Well, definitely the kitchen. I want to replace the tile floor. Still not actionable enough. We're going to have to go even smaller. Call the hardware store for an estimate. Now that's doable. Go look at tile. That's doable. Order the tile. Also doable. These are the kind of things to put on your list or in your planner. Oliver says you also might consider limiting your to-do list to four or five doable tasks at a time. And you're not going to add a new one to that list until you've moved one away, thereby freeing up a slot. That can help you stay focused, because you can't do everything at once. And that's takeaway four. Pick something to let go. You're going to be not excelling on a whole load of dimensions. If you're going to be like a really good parent and a really good employee, then you're probably not going to be able to be a really good, I don't know, runner of triathlons. So as you're making your to-do list with your big picture goals in mind, pick something to fail at too. 
to say, well, okay, instead of constantly being dismayed when I realize that I'm not superhuman, I'm going to make a decision about a few things in advance that for this season of my life, I'm just not going to be doing. So like, you know what? I'm not going to be keeping a tidy, beautiful house while dealing with a newborn baby and working full time, you know. And he says when you choose what to fail at ahead of time, you're really changing your mindset. Because months from now, when you see your messy house, maybe it won't actually feel like you're failing. Instead, you could see it as a reminder of your values in this moment and what you've committed to. I think that a lot of us seem to go through life feeling like we're in sort of productivity debt. You know, we've got to work really hard today to try to pay off the debt by the end of the day. But remember, Oliver says, there's nothing you need to do to earn your right to exist. That was NPR's Mariel Segarra speaking with Oliver Berkman and Angel Trinidad. LifeKit wants to help you make and keep your New Year's resolution. Check out LifeKit's Resolution Planner. You can choose areas of life you'd like to focus on, and the tool will guide you to some of LifeKit's best tips on the topic. You can find it at npr.org slash new year. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Only 27 bills passed through both chambers of Congress this year. We'll take a look at what lawmakers did and did not do coming up in about six minutes on WBUR. More damp weather ahead for the final couple of days of December, although Sunday the 31st is looking sunny. Some clouds New Year's Eve Sunday night, but then clear skies and sunshine are ahead for New Year's Day on Monday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 45 degrees under cloudy skies in the Boston area. The time is 4.30. Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, the senior editor of Cognoscenti, WBUR's ideas and opinion page. We asked our readers to tell us about the most memorable gifts they'd ever received. People told us all sorts of things. A positive pregnancy test, barbecue potato chips, an inflatable boat. I wrote about the bamboo fruit bowl my husband bought me about 20 years ago. We still have it. Gifts can be expensive or dirt cheap. They can be objects or experiences. The best gifts are totally subjective, but often they delight or startle or make you feel truly known. During this holiday season, I hope you'll consider a gift to WBUR. Help us go beyond the news of the day to bring you stories that illuminate ideas and foster understanding. Give now at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm John Stempen. Russia has launched one of its biggest aerial assaults on Ukraine since the war began killing at least 30 people and wounding dozens. NPR's Hannah Palomarenko reports from Kyiv. Russia launched its most massive air attack on Ukraine this morning, using about 160 weapon units of different kinds, including drones, as well as ballistic, supersonic and cruise missiles. Ukrainian officials say air defense forces shot down most of them. The attack damaged civilian infrastructure of major Ukrainian cities across the country, targeting hospitals, schools, residential buildings, warehouses, and a subway station. Poland says one of those Russian missiles may have penetrated its airspace for about three minutes. Poland is a NATO member. Both Polish and NATO radars track the missile, but actual details about the possible missile's trajectory remain undetermined. 
Despite indications the economy is improving, corporate bankruptcies are up. NPR's Bobby Allen reports experts say one factor is all the debt that companies took on when interest rates were near zero during the pandemic. Many corporations took out big loans and expanded fast in 2020 when borrowing costs were extremely low. But as interest rates rose in recent years, some companies with large loans ran out of money and weren't able to borrow. That has led to an uptick in corporate bankruptcies. According to S&P Global Markets, nearly 600 companies filed for bankruptcy this year. That's one of the highest rates in the past decade. Many of the companies, like Rite Aid, Bed Bath & Beyond, and scooter company Bird, entered what's known as Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That's a process aimed at cutting expenses, restructuring debt, and emerging a healthier company. But some firms go under in the process. Bobby Allen, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley continues to campaign in New Hampshire today. The former U.N. ambassador met with voters in Concord this morning and said she is the Republican who's best positioned to beat President Joe Biden in the general election. She also said in the last eight presidential elections, the GOP nominee has lost the popular vote to the Democrats. That is nothing to be proud of. We should want to win the majority of Americans. But the only way that's going to happen is if we have a new generational leader that leaves the negativity and grievances of the past and moves forward. An American research group survey last week showed that among New Hampshire Republican voters, Nikki Haley was within four points of Donald Trump. The state's Republican presidential primary is less than one month away. Crews will start to set up stages tomorrow morning for Boston's first night celebration Sunday. This note, WBR's Walter Wuthman reports, the annual festivities usually happen in Copley Square, but this year they'll be around Boston City Hall. Copley is closed for renovation, but families looking for New Year's Eve activities can still find everything at City Hall Plaza. T.K. Skandarian is on the planning team for First Night Boston and says the festivities will start Sunday morning and will run all day. Ice sculptures, stage, uh, we have a parade at 6 o'clock that will go from here to Boston Common. We have fireworks at 7 o'clock over Boston Common and fireworks at midnight over Boston Harbor. Other activities include improv shows and a carousel on the Greenway. Organizers are encouraging people to take the tea into the city, which will be free after 8 p.m. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Massachusetts will use new federal funding to protect endangered North Atlantic right whales. The State Department of Fish and Game announced today the first installment of $23 million to support research and monitoring of the species. It will also pay for new technology for lobster traps to reduce incidents of whales being harmed. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. And the ICA. Have an artful holiday season with acclaimed exhibitions, a family film festival, art making, and more. Plan your visit at ICABoston.org. Clouds and showers tonight. Tomorrow, mainly gray and drizzly, about 46 degrees. Sunday, some sunshine, and then some clouds around for New Year's Eve Sunday night. Sunshine again on Monday. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet 
for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Congress was in the news a lot this year, but mostly it was not for passing legislation. It left us wondering what they did actually manage to get signed into law. So we've called NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel, who has tracked it all. Hi, Eric. Hey there. All right. Underneath all of the fracas about the House Speaker and George Santos and on and on, was there much legislating happening? No. Basically not. I mean, there were only 27 bills passed through both chambers in the first year of this Congress, including three crisis bills, I guess I'd call them. These are the big ones, two short-term extensions of funding to keep the government open and one to raise the U.S. government's borrowing limit. You may have heard it called the debt ceiling, essentially so the government could pay the credit card bills for the money Congress had already directed it to spend. So these are must-do stuff. But other than that, I mean, they named some veterans affairs clinics. They commissioned a commemorative coin for the 250th anniversary of the Marine Corps. And not much else, way behind even previous years of divided government. So you're saying not only was the number of laws passed very low, but the laws that were passed were not exactly consequential. Why was this so much less productive than other times government has been divided between the parties? Look, I mean, there are a couple ways to look at that, right? The first is divided government. Like we said, they do less. There's a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and a Republican House. That means it's hard to get all three sets of relevant folks to agree. But the problem's a lot deeper than that. I mean, in a lot of ways, the House is working the way that you'd expect it to, given the incentives that are involved. State lawmakers often draw congressional districts, the places that representatives represent, in a way that maximizes their own party's advantage. I mean, I I imagine people have heard that called gerrymandering, and it helps Mm -hmm. to create a system in which just 30 of the... 435 House districts really have a say in who represents them in Congress by the time the general election rolls around. Many of the other 400-whatever seats are decided by party primaries way earlier in the year, often just by the voters from that party. That means these places are set up to elect the most partisan person possible, rather than lawmakers who have to win the support of lots of different kinds of people. And as you might imagine, that makes compromise and legislating really, really hard. Well, if the system is designed to disincentivize compromise and make it unlikely that voters will punish people for being unproductive, that suggests Congress in the years to come is not likely to be much more productive than it's been this year. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, voters often can't punish people because of the way these elections are decided. And it means that Congress won't change without systemic reform. There's good news, though, right? A lot of places are already trying things that can help. California uses a nonpartisan top two primary system. That means voters pick between the top two most popular candidates, no matter which party they're from. Alaska uses something called ranked choice voting, which lets voters rank their preferences rather than just picking one person. And that helps to find consensus picks and really reduces the incentives for candidates during the election season to attack each other. There's also bigger changes on the table, like proportional representation. And I should say, none of these actually require changes to the U.S. Constitution. Well, that's hopeful that there are some possible changes and improvements in the works. In the meantime, what does 2024 look like for Congress? What is likely to pass even this divided House and Senate? Yeah, that's all long-term stuff. In the near term, senators are working on something that we've talked about on this show before, a foreign aid slash national security deal. So they're looking at aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel, aid to the Indo-Pacific, think Taiwan, and U.S. immigration reform. So senators have been negotiating over the holiday season 
And as soon as they get back, both the House and the Senate have to deal with government funding deadlines to keep the government open. They're trying to pass 12 budget bills for a full year actual spending, but we could see more short-term resolutions. Those deadlines are January 19th and February 2nd. That's NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Thank you. Thank you. This year was a wake-up call for people across the U.S. about the dangers of wildfire smoke. The problem grows every year because of human-caused climate change, which fuels bigger wildfires. As NPR's Alejandra Barunda reports, the health risks are also becoming clearer. When people on the East Coast woke up on June 6th, they knew something was wrong. The sky looked weird, and the air felt thick. Not only we can see the orange sky, but also we can smell it. That's Kai Chen. He's an epidemiologist who studies climate change and health at Yale. He was in Connecticut on that day when smoke from massive fires burning in Canada wafted into the eastern U.S. Millions of people there had never seen that kind of smoke before. Now this year has been made very clear, so climate change is everyone's problem. Chen and his colleagues decided to see how much that smoke affected people. So they tracked down New York City Emergency Department records from that week in June. During that three-day smoke wave period, asthma emergency department visits jumps significantly, about a 44% increase. Scientists found that those Canada wildfires and the smoke they caused were almost certainly worse because of human-driven climate change. Sam Hefneal is a scientist at Stanford who studies the impacts of wildfires. He's from California, where wildfires are a fact of life. I had a lot of friends on the East Coast who should now be like, oh, I understand now. This is what you guys have been going through. This year, Hefneal and some colleagues looked at how U.S. air quality has changed in the past few decades since the 1990s when the country's landmark Clean Air Act was updated. Overall, since then, the country's air was getting much better every year. But since 2015, wildfire smoke from Western Burns has erased about two decades worth of improvements. Hefneal says that's a reality people across the country will have to accept. Years that we've seen in recent times that have been considered outliers will become much more the norm. And as that smoke burden grows, so do the health risks. The research coming out clearly shows that wildfire smoke is more toxic than air pollution from other sources. That's Christy Ebay, an epidemiologist who focuses on climate and health risks at the University of Washington. It's not just trees that burn. Any of the photographs from any of these massive wildfires, the buildings, which means you could have asbestos, you could have carcinogens, the automobiles, all the other structures that burn. And that's not all. A recent study in Nature Communications found traces of hexavalent chromium in ash from some wildfires in Northern California. That form of chromium causes cancer, and it was probably in the smoke that millions of people inhaled. Scott Fendorf is a researcher at Stanford who worked on the study. He says the research has changed how he thinks about smoke. I'm young and healthy enough that I thought, oh, you know, until it gets super, super bad, I'm not going to wear a mask. It's just I don't need to. Now, Fendorf says he has a different attitude. And now, having new knowledge of what's in that particulate matter, my calculus is totally different that I'm going to be wearing N95 mask much, much, much earlier than I would have in the past. Researchers like Fendorf hope that as the dangers from wildfire smoke become clearer, more people will take it seriously. That means wearing masks when skies turn smoky, or putting air filters in their homes. But health experts say the most important part of the solution is to stop human-driven climate change, which is fueling the wildfires. Alejandro Borunda, NPR News.
As the year began, cryptocurrencies were crashing, but closing out 2023, it's a different story. Many cryptocurrencies are surging, fueled by expectations that investors may soon have access to a new kind of Bitcoin-backed financial asset. If that happens, some think it could signal a crypto comeback. Listen tomorrow to All Things Considered as we make sense of Bitcoin's rebound. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In his recent year-end address to the nation, Russian President Vladimir Putin called for patience with the war in Ukraine, saying the country would meet its goals. But in Moscow, the war can often seem far away, and NPR's Charles Maines found Russians determined to show patience of another kind. Ultimately, you can blame it on math. 1,700, that's how many people fit in Moscow's fabled Bolshoi Theater. Yet there are just 22 holiday performances of The Nutcracker, a beloved 19th-century ballet by Russian composer Pyotr Tchaikovsky, heard here in a Bolshoi performance from 2014. So, 1,700 seats, 22 performances, which leaves around 37,000 Nutcracker tickets for a city of some 12 million, meaning at the Bolshoi, as in life, there are winners, but more often, losers. Outside the theater, hundreds of Russians brave sub-zero temperatures deep into the night in hopes of securing their golden ticket. We've been standing here for a long time, since nine this morning, says Andre, a Moscow University student who, like everyone in this story, agreed to speak on the condition his last name not appear in the American media. But we'll stay until the end, he adds, because the nutcracker is worth it. It's such a beautiful ballet. I just wanted a chance to see it in my old age, says Raya, a retired cleaner who's lived in Moscow most of her life but never been to a Nutcracker production. And this gets to another issue. The Bolshoi sells only 400 Nutcracker tickets per day. And to get them, you have to stand in line. Most people I spoke with were on their second try after a melee broke out the night before. They opened the gates and the crowd just shoved us out of the way, says Zhenya mother of two who works in the aviation industry. If people were more cultured, they would have seen that pensioners and others have been waiting all day long, she adds. Unfortunately, that's not the society we live in. On this night, riot police were on hand, but they mostly sat warm in their bus. The engine kicking acrid fumes over the same crowd police were in theory there to protect. If all of this, ballet, beauty, suffering and scarcity sound like Russian tropes, well, here's another. No corruption. Corruption. What, you really think someone's not making money off of all of this, says Zhenya, glancing towards the front of the line? I'm supposed to stand here for 10 hours, admitted Beck, one of several migrant workers from Central Asia I met at the head of the queue. <laughs> He's a hired gun, said one of his friends, as he and Beck gave a smile. In fact, people kept telling me all the ways a small fortune can be made for those looking to sell a spot in line. Russia, of course, is at war and under heavy Western sanctions because of it. But no one seemed to want to talk about Ukraine, and maybe with good reason. These days, the wrong opinion can easily land you in jail. Still, the conflict was there, lurking just off stage. As I joked that an endless line felt like something out of the USSR, Riot, the retired pensioner, told me she really did have nostalgia for the Soviet days. Honestly, things were so much calmer then. Today, there's that little war. Her voice trailing off. Andre, the university student, told me that during hard times, Russians gravitated towards art. To stand in line and talk to people, to listen to music and watch ballet, it brings me joy, he said. 
Meanwhile, Zhenya, the aviation worker, said if there was ever a time to see the Nutcracker, it was now. Russia cut off from Europe and traveled to other destinations, astronomically expensive. You can't go anywhere these days, she says. And so, with New Year's just around the corner, she returns to the line, hoping for a different kind of ticket to better times. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, USA to Ukraine is once again under the microscope. A look at how Congress is thinking about the issues still ahead. In the forecast, more damp weather for the final couple of days in December. Clouds press on tonight, showers off and on, about 40 degrees. Tomorrow, still gray, still damp. Sunday, the 31st, though, is looking sunny. Some clouds around New Year's Eve, Sunday night, but then clear skies and sunshine ahead for New Year's Day on Monday. 44 degrees in Boston at 449. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Celtics will be looking to keep their at-home winning streak alive tonight as the Toronto Raptors come to town. Celts have won all of their 15 home games so far. Tonight's tip-off is at 7.30. WBUR supporters include Burton's Grill and Bar with scratch kitchens, customizing dishes for guests with allergies or dietary restrictions. Eight locations in Greater Boston. Burton'sGrill.com and comedian Jimmy Tingle in Humor and Hope for the Holidays, Comedy and Politics, December 29th through New Year's Eve, Wimberley Theatre, jimmytingle.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, Weird Al Yankovic explains how he came to cast Daniel Radcliffe as himself in the movie he made about his own life. The first time I saw Harry Potter, I thought, you know, someday that guy's got to play me. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Weird Al plays himself in this week's show, as does Gina Davis, Karen Allen, and Instagram's Huddest Lobsterman. I, however, will be played by Stanley Tucci because the studio insisted on a name. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. From the peaks of Barbenheimer to the depths of actors and writer strikes, Hollywood has been on a roller coaster this year. Happily, the overall trend is up, with attendance inching ever closer to healthy pre-pandemic levels. And quality, that is up too, judging from critic Bob Mondello's 10 Best List, which positively overflows. Can we just marvel for a moment that a cerebral drama about the father of the atom bomb very nearly topped the billion-dollar mark at the box office? Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer isn't just a breathtaking achievement visually and dramatically. It's also, at least in terms of dollars and cents, the most successful serious film in decades, a blockbuster biopic. Who'd have thunk? And Nolan wasn't alone in crafting a stylish portrait of a major 20th century figure. Hello. 
I'm Lenny. Hello, Felicia. Bradley Cooper made an evocative chamber biopic about composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein and his complicated life as a closeted, bisexual, and mostly happily married celebrity in the 1950s and 60s. What age are we living in? One can be as free as one likes without guilt or confession. Please, I know exactly who you are. Maestro is as much about Carrie Mulligan's Felicia as it is about Bradley Cooper's Bernstein. Martin Scorsese's epic, Killers of the Flower Moon, is also taken from real life, the story of a scheme to cheat and ultimately extinguish Oklahoma's Osage Nation. They have the worst land possible, but they outsmarted everybody. The land had oil on it. Money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. <laughs> Leo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro are the killers, while Lily Gladstone embodies the promise of a flower moon in a monstrous true tale of greed and violence. A pair of sharply pointed comedies took aim at some other social issues this year. I am Bella Baxter. Emma Stone stars in Poor Things, the latest weirdness from Yorgos Lanthimos, which feels like what you'd get if Mary Shelley had written Frankenstein. She's an experiment. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. As a sex farce with feminist leanings. A woman plotting her course to freedom. How delightful. Also using comedy to make a point, American fiction tackles the way writers of color get erased or compromised by the publishing industry. They want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black and it's my book. You know what I mean. He does. So to make a point, he pens a story chock full of stereotypes and sends it to his agent. I'd be standing outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing. And when the agent sends it out? We sold your book. No. We believe Mr. Lee has written a bestseller. It's a joke. The most lucrative joke you've ever told. If media stereotyping were all that first-time filmmaker Cord Jefferson were playing with, his film would be a riot. But he's also got bigger fallacies to fry and emotions to lean into, and he ends up making American fiction every bit as grand as that title. That's five of a top ten. The next two are animated, one in just about every style you can imagine. Wait, wait, wait hold on. The Mona Lisa. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse brings us Miles Morales, Brooklyn's black Latino spider guy, as well as spider folks and even spider cats from all over. Cleverly animated, it's also rich in feeling and character, which is something it shares with the boy and the heron from Studio Ghibli's 82-year-old master of anime, Hayao Miyazaki. I'm looking for someone. He's recounting in fable terms and with exquisite images his own youth coping with wartime tragedy through imagination. You see this world? There's more work to be done. The Boy and the Heron has intensity, longing, ethereal beauty, all qualities also found in a pair of this year's most delicately nuanced romances, one bridging continents, Korea to New York. What a good story this is. It's called Past Lives. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. The other romance bridges dimensions. I've always felt like a stranger in my own family. It's called All of Us Strangers and looks at two gay men finding each other just as one of them discovers he can visit the parents who died when he was 12. Is this real? Does it feel real? Our boys back home? Call All of Us Strangers a haunting romance. It was a long time ago. Yeah, I don't think that matters. No Less Haunting is the film that rounds out my top ten, one that captures the joy and the pain of adolescent friendship. <laughs> 
in the Belgian drama Close, two rambunctious, inseparable 13-year-olds have their closeness irrevocably upended by a stray comment at school. Writer-director Lucas Dont is alert to broader social implications, but the film's power comes from the boys themselves. Ten is an arbitrary number, and I've still got some time, so let's just keep going. I keep thinking there's no new way to tell a story of the Holocaust, but the zone of interest finds one, embedding audiences with the Nazi commandant's family in a home that butts up against the walls of Auschwitz. Also powerful, a documentary about more recent cruelties, El Juicio, the trial made up entirely of the actual court proceedings that put Argentina's dictator in jail in 1985, including the prosecutor's fiery final statement. Señores jueces, nunca más. Nunca más. Never again. It's been such an extraordinary year for foreign films that another trial, this one rivetingly acted in the drama Anatomy of a Fall, That's not true. managed to win the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Fest but still won't be France's entry in the Oscars. What beat it out? A mouth-watering feast for foodies called The Taste of Things. It stars Juliette Binoche and should not be seen on an empty stomach. In a British film called Scrapper, a long-absent father comes home after his ex dies to find their 12-year-old is fending for herself. How come you didn't want to marry me 12 years ago? Because we were young. Like, we weren't getting along. She told me to leave. You're a liar. I ain't surprised no one stuck around for you, you know? Scrapper basically turns the adolescent coming-of-age story on its head. Dad is the one who needs to grow up so his daughter can finally let go and be a kid. In an American twist on the absent parent notion, a free-spirited mom, fresh from prison, kidnaps her six-year-old from foster care in the drama A Thousand and One. Just let me see your eyes so I know you're not mad at me. I'm staying out of trouble this time. The film builds to a startling reveal that makes you question everything you've just seen. Other purposely discomforting juxtapositions of adults and children include the tabloid-inspired May-December, Todd Haynes's provocative... I'm going to call it a melodramedy about an actress preparing to tread in dicey territory. Why would you want to play someone who you think is a bad person? It's the more gray areas that are interesting. Also, Alexander Payne's prep school comedy, The Holdovers, about a curmudgeonly teacher played by Paul Giamatti. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. And the mockumentary Theater Camp, about showbusy counselors and 11-year-olds who speak fluent Wicked and Sweeney Todd. Welcome, auditioners. You guys are so talented, so unbelievable. This will break you. This will fully destroy you. Congratulations on being the most talented kids at camp. And yes, I've not forgotten... Hi, Barbie! 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 Greta Gerwig's insanely popular hot pink comedy that is insanely popular for a reason. Which brings us to 20 bests, and now, though I could still go on, we are out of time. I'm Bob Mandela. Phew! I'm exhausted just listening to that. This is All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station... And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us this evening. Light rain off and on this evening and overnight tonight, staying right about 40 degrees. Tomorrow should be cloudy, reaching the mid-40s tops. And then sunshine should emerge for Sunday, the final day of the year, back around 40 degrees. A fair share of clouds on New Year's Eve Sunday night. And the New Year's Day looks like it's going to be at least partly sunny. Look high in the sky tonight and each night this weekend. If the clouds allow, you should be able to see the shiniest star up there, Sirius. The only thing brighter is planet Jupiter. I'm here and now host Scott Tong. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This morning, Russia launched what may have been the biggest aerial barrage of the war with Ukraine, killing at least 30 civilians and wounding more than 100. With news of the strike, USA to Ukraine is once again under a microscope as the Pentagon announces its final shipment without additional funding from Congress. It's Friday, December 29th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, we'll meet a man in Gaza who went from being a successful cattle farmer to now living in a van with his family. They have no water and little hope. Unruly passenger incidents have dropped since a big spike in 2021, but the number of reported incidents this year is still higher than it was before the pandemic. How come? Today we're seeing that every single seat is filled up. The more you have humanity packed into one location, the more likely is that there's conflict. What else might be behind the problem coming up? It's 501. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Pressure is growing for the Supreme Court to consider whether former President Donald Trump should be disqualified from the ballot in 2024. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports some states are using the 14th Amendment to make the argument that Trump is ineligible to serve a second term because of his role in the January 6th insurrection. This week, Maine Secretary of State barred Trump from the Republican ballot after she found that under the terms put forth by the 14th Amendment, Trump engaged in an insurrection. The top court in Colorado offered similar reasoning when it barred Trump earlier this month. But California, Michigan, and Minnesota have refused to boot the GOP frontrunner. Now advocates are pressing the Supreme Court to weigh in and provide clarity to the nation. It's one of multiple issues the high court may be asked to decide in the coming weeks that could change the outcome of the 2024 presidential race. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. At least 30 people are dead after Russia carried out its largest attack on Ukraine today. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports Russian forces launched more than 100 missiles on cities across the country, including the capital, Kyiv. The largest number of those that were killed happened in the city of Dnipro, where the attack hit a shopping mall and a maternity hospital. And Dnipro, you know, is a relatively quiet city in central Ukraine. In Kyiv, the capital, a factory was targeted. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny reporting. Poland's defense forces say what appeared to be a Russian missile flew into its airspace before returning to Ukraine minutes later. The United Nations is warning that human rights are deteriorating in the occupied West Bank. NPR's Nita Kravinsky reports Israel's war against Hamas has taken a toll on the region, especially among children. 
A new report from the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights calls for an immediate end to the use of military weapons during law enforcement operations in the West Bank, as well as an end to what it describes as, quote, arbitrary detention and ill treatment of Palestinians there. The report says Israeli security forces have killed 271 people in the West Bank since October 7th, when Israel launched its offensive in Gaza in response to a Hamas attack. A separate report out from UNICEF Thursday says this has been the deadliest year on record for children in the West Bank. The report says 83 children have been killed there in the past 12 weeks, more than double the number of children killed in the West Bank in all of 2022. UNICEF considers anyone under the age of 18 a child. Nina Kravinsky, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Stocks on Wall Street closed the last day of the trading year lower. The Dow lost 20 points. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Dover couple and their teenage daughter are dead in what authorities say is an apparent case of domestic violence. Norfolk County DA Michael Morrissey says the bodies of Rakesh Kamal and his wife Tina and their 18-year-old daughter Ariana were found inside their home last night. Morrissey says police found a handgun near the father. We see this too much and too often across the Commonwealth, which is why we place such an emphasis on domestic violence and prosecuting domestic violence and also trying to get people help. A relative went to the home last night to check on the family and then called police. The daughter was a student at Middlebury College. Republicans in the state of Maine say they will fight the state's decision to bar Donald Trump's name from the ballot. Secretary of State Shanna Bello said yesterday that her decision to keep Trump's name off the ballot is the result of his role in the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. The evidence before me demonstrated that those events occurred at the behest of and with the knowledge and support of the outgoing president. And the United States Constitution does not tolerate an assault on the foundations of our government. MIMA required me to act in response. The state of Colorado removed Trump's name from its ballot earlier this month. The Supreme Court is expected to make the final decision on whether states can keep the former president's name off state ballots. Food insecurity in Massachusetts has increased almost 50 percent since the start of the pandemic. That's according to an analysis of federal data by the group Hunger Free America. It says a half million Massachusetts residents did not have regular access to food last year. The group links the increase in food insecurity to the expiration of federal pandemic-era benefits. In the forecast, raw weather tonight, not much cooler than it is right now, just about 40 degrees overnight. For tomorrow, cloudy skies, showers off and on, inching up to the mid-40s. Sunday should be brighter, sunny skies, about 40 degrees again. New Year's Eve Sunday night should be generally cloudy, but dry and colder too, right around 30 degrees. Then partly sunny skies for New Year's Day on Monday. 44 degrees in Boston at 5.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. More than 100 Russian missiles and drones fell on Ukrainian cities this morning. Ukrainian officials say it's the biggest air assault of the war, killing at least 16 people and wounding more than 160. A shopping mall, a school, and a factory are among the places that were hit. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny is in Ukraine and has more details from Lviv. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Ari. Tell us more about the strikes and what was targeted. 
So this morning, people all across Ukraine woke up to the sound of air raid sirens. There were incoming missiles and drones. Lviv was hit, Kharkiv was hit, Dnipro, Kiev, Odessa, so many cities across the country. The targets ended up being largely civilian infrastructure, residential buildings, commercial buildings. They were hit in the morning as people were about to start their day, and they lasted several hours. And Ari, one of Russia's missiles appears to have briefly entered the airspace of Poland, which is a NATO country. That is according to Poland's military, which said an aerial object was spotted in Friday's early morning hours during this barrage. It only lasted about three minutes in Polish airspace, reaching about 40 kilometers inside Poland before flying back over to Ukraine. And something like that is rare and kind of reminds people of those early concerns at the beginning of the war that this could spread out of Ukraine because, of course, NATO has a joint defense pact. What kind of damage did these attacks cause to buildings and other infrastructure in the country? So the missile attacks didn't appear to hit critical infrastructure like electrical systems or power grids. Instead, it was mostly where civilians live and visit. In the city of Dnipro in central Ukraine, the attack hit a shopping mall and a maternity hospital. Artem Rushkin was in Dnipro visiting his family for Christmas. He planned to go to the cinema tonight at that shopping mall in Dnipro. He had a ticket to see the new Ferrari movie. The theater is now closed. Here he is. The world somehow is growing tired. Of, the, of news from Ukraine while we try not to get tired of being bombed, of being um, terrorized. In Kyiv, a factory was hit. The mayor there said rescue workers were still searching for people that might be under the debris. In a video address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the targets across Ukraine also included a school, 45 high-rise buildings, and more than 100 private houses. He says rescue efforts are underway in multiple cities, which means those numbers of dead and wounded are rising as more people are discovered in the rubble. Ukrainian officials say the country's air defense systems managed to shoot down most of the missiles, even though there were a lot of them, right? Yeah, Ukrainian officials say, you know, this was the largest aerial attack. It's unclear if that includes the days of the initial invasion back in February of 2022. You know, the Air Force wasn't tracking back then. What's different now, Ari, is that Ukraine has new Western-supplied air defense systems, including the U.S.-supplied Patriot defense system. So, yeah, they were able to shoot down the majority of those missiles. And that's likely what Russia was aiming to test and ultimately weaken, because the systems have to engage and shoot down incoming weapons. The Air Force said what made this attack so bad is the volume all at once. What else have Ukrainian officials said in response to today's attacks? President Zelensky said Ukraine would respond, though he did not provide any details. And the Ministry of Defense of Russia claimed that Ukraine shot U.S.-made harm missiles into Russian territory this afternoon. Ukraine has not confirmed that it fired those. And This comes at a time when officials here in Ukraine are really worried that support from Europe and the U.S. is waning. The Minister of Foreign Affairs here said he wanted the sound of explosions in Ukraine to be heard all across the world. You know, Ari, it's been a very quiet fall in Ukraine, which has allowed Russia to stockpile this barrage of weapons. And Ukrainian officials are bracing for more attacks like the one this morning to continue, especially, you know, New Year's Eve is coming on Sunday, which is a big holiday here in Ukraine, and the threat is extremely high. That's NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reporting in Ukraine from the city of Lviv. Thank you. Be safe. Thanks, Ari. U.S. aid to Ukraine is dwindling even as the country recovers from that massive bombardment from Russia. A funding bill in Congress is currently stalled, and that means the weapons and money to send to Ukraine are running out. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. 
Defense officials recently announced the U.S. will be sending Ukraine $250 million worth of air defense, artillery, and anti-tank weapons. And they say it could be the last aid package unless Congress approves supplemental funding. Earlier this month, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned the situation was getting dire. There is no magic pot of money that we can draw from. The assistance, the support... Uh, that we have designated for, for Ukraine, that is running out. It's running down. We are nearly out of money uh, that, uh, that we need, and we're nearly out of time. In a statement, DOD officials said this latest aid package was the 54th shipment of military equipment for Ukraine from U.S. inventory since August 2021. The latest round of spending sought by the Biden administration wouldn't just provide more support to Ukraine, but officials say it would also replenish the Pentagon's own stockpile. Here is Defense Department spokesperson Major General Pat Ryder. We will have exhausted the funding available for us to provide security assistance to Ukraine. So it really does underscore the importance of congressional support for Ukraine. However, this funding bill has been stalled in Congress. Before lawmakers went home for the holidays, House Speaker Mike Johnson told Fox News that the Republican caucus has been waiting for clarity on how this money would be used. We've been asking the White House for a clear strategy that will allow Ukraine to prevail in this conflict, and they've not provided satisfactory answers. We need clarity on the oversight over the precious treasury, the taxpayer dollars of the uh, American citizens. And, and we need to know how that money is being spent and, and what the end game is. And the White House has been completely unclear about that. Republicans in Congress have also told the White House they won't act on Ukraine funding until there is more money to secure the country's southern border. Because the two issues are intertwined for the foreseeable future, negotiations could be more complicated in the House. In the Senate, however, negotiations for a funding deal have continued through the holiday break, though no deal has been announced. Amid an escalation by Russia, this will be a top priority for lawmakers when they return to Washington in the new year. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. The holiday travel season has been relatively smooth so far, though let's not jinx it, I'm flying tonight. Mild weather across much of the country has made air travelers jolly, with airlines canceling flights at much lower rates, knock wood, than last year. Still, the aviation industry has seen its share of turbulence this year. Unruly passengers are tangling with flight attendants and their fellow passengers more often than they did before the coronavirus pandemic. No one is quite sure why, but there are some theories, as NPR's Joel Rose reports. Passengers behaving badly were easy to find this year, like the man who punched a flight attendant in San Francisco. Oh, my God. Or the passenger who disrupted a flight from Miami to Washington, forcing an emergency landing. Subject is currently loose in the cabin and tries to breach the cockpit. Or this woman, so who was arrested after fighting with another passenger before a flight to Philadelphia. There have been close to 2,000 reported incidents involving unruly passengers this year, according to the Federal Aviation Administration. That's a sharp decline from the height of the pandemic, when mask mandates fueled many of those clashes. Now those mandates are gone, but unruly passenger incidents are still happening more often than before, about 70 percent more this year than 2019, according to FAA data. 
flight attendants are working harder than ever. They're practicing their de-escalation skills almost every single flight. Sarah Nelson is the president of the Association of Flight Attendants Union. So why are passengers misbehaving more often? Nelson says one big reason is crowding. Today we're seeing that every single seat is filled up. The more you have humanity packed into one uh, location, the more likely it is that there's conflict. Airlines are flying fewer flights than they were before the pandemic, but with a similar number of passengers. The head of the Federal Aviation Administration, Michael Whitaker, agrees this is probably a reason why disruptions are up. The flights are very full, and so it um, uh, can be a pretty stressful experience flying. Uh, that's certainly part of it. Um, and I think we've just continued to see less civil behavior. So I, I think what we can do is make it very clear that we have zero tolerance for that. With fuller planes, boarding takes longer. Overhead bins are packed. And there are fewer options for rebooking when things go wrong. Tom McDaniel is a flight attendant with Southwest Airlines and a vice president with the Transport Workers Union of America. Whenever somebody's been delayed for hours or days and uh, they're sitting in the airport and they're frustrated and they're angry, uh, the closest target is the employee uh, in the airport or the flight attendants on the plane who are getting the, the brunt of their frustration. Still, crowded planes may not be the only reason that passengers are misbehaving more often. Cheryl Skaggs is a professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Dallas. She studied unruly passenger incidents and just co-wrote a paper about them. Skaggs says there are a couple of themes that stand out. The most significant piece of that is alcohol. In so many of these cases, passengers have been drinking and or mixing them with some kind of prescription or recreational drugs. But people have been drinking in airports and on planes for a long time. And often those planes were pretty full, even before the pandemic. Skaggs thinks there may be something else that's changed. Post-pandemic, people are just different. They tend to have, you know, shorter fuses. I think that people have just lost their ability to understand what, you know, kindness and patience looks like. In other words, maybe it's not just flying that's gotten worse. Maybe we have, too. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on WBUR in about 15 minutes. In 2023, cities across the country experienced big drops in shootings. Chicago had a huge drop in violent crime. Homicides are down, you know, pretty convincingly. Like 2023 has been a great year. Coming up, how some Chicago residents are working with young men to settle conflicts before they escalate. That story and much more is still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont. Celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event through Tuesday, January 2nd. 
The main indices on Wall Street lost some ground on this, the last trading day of the year. The Dow fell a small fraction. S&P was down nearly three-tenths of a percent today. Even so, the S&P rose nearly 25 percent this year. The Nasdaq today lost more than a half percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Cambridge Naturals, with alpaca wool hats, organic chocolates, candles, fine body care, and more for thoughtful gift-giving in Porter Square, Brighton, and CambridgeNaturals.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Join us Monday, January 8th at City Space for a conversation with Jack Zhang, chef and stay-at-home dad, whose viral videos of cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a new cookbook. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Cloudy skies and some showers through the night tonight, about 40 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, gray skies, showers again in the mid-40s. Sunday should feature some sunshine, about 40 degrees again. Some clouds back for New Year's Eve, then sunshine on New Year's Day Monday. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I have had the honor for the last several years of conducting the annual All Things Considered Holiday Cocktail Interview. It is that time of year again, friends. So we have come to a cocktail bar, except... Fewer of us are drinking cocktails. According to one survey, non-alcoholic spirit sales grew more than 100% in the last year they could measure. So we have come to a bar that is zero proof, zero alcohol. Let's check it out. Hi, how are you folks? Virgie? Yes. Mary Louise, nice to meet you. This is Binge Bar. It opened this past February, the first completely alcohol-free bar in the nation's capital. We step inside, head down narrow stairs, into a cozy basement space where Gigi Aranded is waiting for us. She's the founder and owner, and I start with the basic question, why? Why open a bar with no booze? It is an extension of my lifestyle. I'm going on seven years sober. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And in the beginning of my sobriety journey, I knew going to AA meetings was not going to be enough to manage my sobriety and healing to recovery just because of the type of person that I am. I realized once I opened the space that there are people like me who didn't think uh, the same way. Not that there's anything wrong with AA. I feel like we all have respective faces and needed more exactly and this this may be it may be such an Mm -hmm. obvious answer but i'm curious what's different about creating this Mm -hmm. that you couldn't have at any bar in dc where you can obviously walk in and order a coke or a pretty cocktail with no booze in it 
my concept in particular is that I just wanted uh, for people to kind of gather and be able to have an open dialogue about where they are in their journey, whether if they're sober, taking a break, pregnant, and chronic illnesses, because there are a lot of people that serves this type of concept, not just people that are in recovery. Did people get it? Like when you explained the idea, what was the reaction? No, no. I remember my first taste of backlash and I received a lot of negative comments. Without wishing to dwell on what sounds like one of the less happy aspects, what was the backlash you got when you floated the idea? Oh, that it was going to be for church folks. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, or that it's going to close in a month. All that good stuff. Before opening Binge, Iran did hosted pop-ups, mixing drinks for all kinds of people, non-drinkers, people avoiding alcohol temporarily, the sober curious. I served pregnant women that were eight months pregnant, Muslim couples, and father and daughter that were like taking a stroll. Iran did, by the way, will tell you she does not make mocktails. I prefer to say elevated and elegant, non-alcoholic, spirit-free cocktails. I wonder if there's a story you would tell. Mm-hmm. Has somebody walked through that door at the top of the stairs and looked around and said, oh, thank God, like I needed this. Yes, yes. It's a lot of um, real smiles and a lot of tears also because, um, and again, we welcome those because they would they would come up to me and say, Gigi, I didn't think that would ever step into a bar. It's been three years. I'm so glad you opened this. So those of the, sorry. That's when it gets personal. And that's where I think the love comes from. And it gets personal because you've walked that walk. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It must bring so much joy to get to to get to open your doors to other people who've wrestled uh, with this. Yes, definitely. Um, it's time to break the stigma that is attached to this addiction because it's real. And people who are struggling does not have the resources sometimes to have a space like this. Um, just to like, you know, come in and be comfortable in. And I always say like, you know, we can heal out loud, but we can also struggle out loud together. Mm. Yeah. And that's why our tagline is come as you are. Of course, the All Things Considered holiday cocktail interview would not be complete without us having a taste in the name of journalism. So we step up to the bar. What I'm actually gonna make is the sole apple cider mimosa because DC loves a good brunch, loves a good mimosa. Brunch with the girls, etc. Okay, it's a slice of green apple into the shaker. I'm going to muddle it to release all that aroma, the tannins and the juice. I usually do an all spice, but maybe we can do cinnamon because cinnamon is also very holiday-ish. This is right? just ground cinnamon. Yes, ground cinnamon, not too much. And then this right here is our hibiscus mixer. I cooked this myself in the kitchen. All right, so that was what, like three ounces, something like that? Just that was out? about four. And then just a little bit of agave, not too much, right? Because that one is already sweet. I'm gonna put a little bit of ice, not a lot, because I don't want a lot of dilution into the cocktail. Then we're gonna do a quick shake. My workout. A little sound effect there. I hope you guys like that. A champagne flute. I love how you just got super excited just now. What was that? Okay. Ooh, it's dark. 
So you're topping up the mixture in the fluke. Bubbles bubbling up. Bubbling almost over. A little apple garnish. Pretty. Cheers. You're gonna have a cute little bubble, like <laughs> mustache or like a foam mustache. A sparkling wine <laughs> tash. Here we go. Mm, refreshing. Refreshing. I can really taste the apple. Thank you. You're so welcome. This year, millions of Americans plan to take part in Dry January, and Binge Bar will ring in 2024 with a New Year's bash full of music, dancing, and of course, elegant, spirit-free cocktails. Gigi Aranded will be raising an alcohol-free glass to all of you on Sunday and wishing you a very happy New Year. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. 44 degrees now overnight tonight. Cloudy skies, maybe some showers. Tomorrow, more clouds. Sunshine on Sunday. Some clouds back for New Year's Eve Sunday night. Then partly sunny skies for New Year's Day Monday. We don't get to thank the people who make WBUR's All Things Considered happen often enough. So here goes. Thank you to field producer Lynn Jolliker, Paul Canerny, Fausto Menard, Dave Faniff, Amy Sokolow, John Bender, Garo Hagopian, Josie Guarino, Renee Marchando, and fellows Irina Machavariani and Jacob Garcia. Also, lest we forget, engineer Eddie Mazoulis, who keeps us on the air. Thank you, thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Feldman Geospatial, presenting live jazz weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. The film Maestro follows the tumultuous marriage between composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein and actor Felicia Montalegra. There is something completely suffocating about being in his orbit, you know, being around the fame and everything that is needed to sustain him. That conversation with actor Carrie Mulligan, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here 
tomorrow. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm John Stempen. Maine's Secretary of State disqualified former President Trump from the ballot there based on her read of the 14th Amendment. NPR's Domenico Montanaro says differing rulings and opinions across states are heading in one direction. It's hard to see how the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't respond soon to what's happening. Maine and Colorado are now the two states that have decided Trump should be disqualified because of his role in inspiring the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. A handful of other states, including Michigan, Minnesota, and California, have said he can stay on the ballot, and there are cases pending in at least a dozen more states. All of this is happening with just weeks until primary season in a presidential election year, and pressure has to be building among the justices to settle the matter. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. In one of the biggest attacks against Ukraine so far, officials in Kyiv say Russia launched almost 125 missile and drone attacks. At least 30 people died, 12 dozen are injured, and an unknown number remained buried under rubble. Iranian, uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky credits American defense systems for eliminating the carnage. With 2023 ending, many world stock markets showing double-digit gains for the year. David Wessel of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. The prospects for a soft landing where inflation comes down towards the Fed's 2% target without a recession are looking pretty good. But 2024 is likely to bring slower growth than this year and a small increase in the employment rate and probably a slowdown in consumer spending as the last of the money saved during the pandemic is spent. It won't be good for everybody, of course, but the outlook is far better than many forecasters were predicting just a few months ago. In fact, nearly all the surprises in the economy have been good ones, and that could persist in 2024. The Dow lost 20 points on Friday, the Nasdaq fell 83, the NAS, uh, S&P 500 off 13. We are NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Officials at a hospital in Newburyport said today they're working to recover from a cybersecurity incident that affected some of their systems. Anna Jake's hospital remains open. The Newburyport Daily News reports the breach required the facility to divert ambulances on Christmas Day. The hospital says it's investigating the breach. Some 200,000 people are expected to descend on Boston this weekend for first night festivities Sunday. WBR's Amelia Mason reports on the city's plan to make sure all those visitors are safe. At a press conference, Boston's top brass said additional Boston police officers and firefighters would be on duty for security and crowd control. Fire Marshal Patrick Ellis issued a warning to anyone tempted to set off their own fireworks. When the children see some of the adults that they know blasting fireworks off, they think it's okay for them to do it. This last Independence Day prior, we had a life-altering consequence for a child that picked up an unexploded firework. We want to avoid that if at all possible, so please just let the professionals do the fireworks. Music and other family-friendly events kick off at 11 a.m., with fireworks displays at 7 p.m. on Boston Common and at City Hall Plaza at midnight. Officials encouraged visitors to take the tea, which is free after 8 p.m. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. Work is underway today on large-scale ice sculpture outside the New England Aquarium. It's part of the Boston Waterfront Ice Sculpture Stroll for New Year's weekend. The aquarium's Kristen McMahon says that artist John Chappelle of Lawrence is carving his sculpture this year in the shape of the beloved sea lions that reside at the facility. So he is sculpting four sea lions, one male and three females, and using 10,000 pounds of ice, 32 blocks of ice, and the dimensions of the sculpture are pretty incredible. It'll be 12 feet long, 6 feet tall. There'll be more than 30 locations comprising the ice sculpture stroll this weekend. The forecast is coming up.
WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Light rain off and on this evening and overnight tonight, right about 40 degrees. Tomorrow should reach the mid-40s tops, heavy on the clouds, rain off and on, not too bad for New Year's weekend festivities. Sunshine should emerge for Sunday, the final day of the year, back around 40 degrees. Fair share of clouds on New Year's Eve and then New Year's Day Monday, partly sunny, still about 40. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Rite Aid, Bed Bath & Beyond, Party City, Vice Media, WeWork. These are just some of the hundreds of companies that filed for bankruptcy this year. Despite an approving economy, 2023 has been one of the busiest years in a decade for corporate bankruptcies. To help us make sense of all this, we are joined by NPR's Bobby Allen. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Lana. So, Bobby, how does 2023 compare to years past when it comes to bankruptcies? Yeah, you know, it's been pretty bad this year. There were nearly 600 corporate bankruptcies. That's higher than the past couple of years and one of the highest in the past decade. Now, just to clarify things, we're talking mostly about a kind of bankruptcy called Chapter 11. It's when a company on really shaky financial footing tries to reorganize to stay alive. You know, they can refinance debt, they can sell assets, try to trim down the size of the company. This is not liquidation, right? It's not the kind of bankruptcy that closes a company's doors forever, but still a company only files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy when it's on the brink of collapse. And that just happened a lot this year. Okay, but I've been hearing a whole lot about positive economic news this year. So help us square this. How did all of these companies that you and I are talking about end up in such dire straits? Yeah, well, during the pandemic, the Fed kept interest rates at near zero. Borrowing costs were at rock bottom and companies seized on this. Corporations took out lots of debt and used those loans for hiring and growth. Then in recent years, interest rates started notching up pretty rapidly. Companies were then running out of cash and not able to take out new loans because borrowing was just more expensive. And, you know, this comes just as these corporations were loaded up with debt. That, of course, led to bankruptcies. Um, I talked to Edward Altman. He's a bankruptcy expert at New York University, and he expects the bankruptcy situation to only get worse in the coming years. Certainly the high interest rates that we've had now for at least a year and the enormous buildup in corporate debt in the last three or four years is contributing to the stress this year. And my outlook is for this to continue into 24 and 25 with perhaps even higher number of bankruptcies. So Bobby, with all of these companies filing for bankruptcy this year and perhaps more coming next year, how could this affect the overall economy? Yeah, there are a number of ways, right? When bankruptcy are are on the rise, banks become more stringent about lending to companies with lots of debt. 
Bankruptcies, of course, often result in mass job loss for workers at those firms. And, you know, seeing headlines about bankruptcy after bankruptcy after bankruptcy is bad for consumer confidence. It gives the impression that the economy is in rough shape. At the same time, corporate bankruptcy is an integral part of how the U.S. economy works. And while no company, of course, wants to file for bankruptcy, it can be viewed as more of a feature than a bug. It creates a lot of pain for companies and certainly workers, but it often can extend a lifeline to a company. But many companies do come out of bankruptcy just fine, right? Yeah, that's right. Going through Chapter 11 bankruptcy is something many big companies or even entire industries have gone through. Nearly every U.S. airline has gone through bankruptcy, cut down costs and, you know, come out a profitable company. You know, back in 2009, General Motors did the same, entered bankruptcy, cut its debt and expenses and was able to survive. Like I said, bankruptcy may sound like a scary word, but... Sometimes bankruptcy is about giving a company some breathing room, a way to sort of pare back what's not working. Um, but not every company can come out of it. Sometimes Chapter 11 bankruptcy is the first step towards a company going completely under. But at least with some of the big name bankruptcies this year, uh, most are expected to stick around just a lot smaller than before. Bobby, thank you. Thanks, Juana. That's NPR's Bobby Allen. When it comes to crime, cities across the country experienced big drops in shootings in 2023. Some of the largest decreases occurred in cities that have become almost synonymous with gun crime, like Chicago, Detroit, and Philadelphia. The reduction in Chicago came in areas considered the most violent, with the number of murders and shootings dropping lower than before the pandemic. Patrick Smith of member station WBEZ reports. Tony Rags is just getting ready to shut down his boxing gym for the night. Most of the kids who had been here earlier working out and goofing around are gone. Rags and his brother opened the gym up in the basement of a church building a few years ago. The latest tactic to try and teach conflict resolution that doesn't involve guns. I had two guys come in last week, got into a, a fist fight on the street. Both guys were 17 years old. It, it, it could have uh, easily uh, escalated. You know, there's always somebody on the sideline edging somebody on. So brought them down, had a conversation with them, and um, they made up right there. Rags has been trying to reduce gun violence on Chicago's west side for years. And in the summer of 2020, Chicago, just like much of the rest of the country, saw the number of shootings and murders in some of its most troubled neighborhoods explode. At the height of the pandemic and in the immediate aftermath of the George Floyd uprisings, murders in Chicago went up more than 50% in one year. Rag says it was a bad time in his neighborhood of West Humboldt Park. We was actually up against the pandemic and the epidemic of violence. But now, for the second year in a row, shootings and murders are down in Chicago. West Humboldt Park is leading the city in the year-over-year -year drop. Chicago overall is still more violent now than it was in 2019, but some of the neighborhoods with the highest levels of gun violence are safer today than they were before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, according to Kim Smith. She's the director of programs for the University of Chicago Crime Lab. You might expect that the community areas where gun violence increased the most might also be the places where the benefits of reduction have been most disproportionately felt, and, and that is, is what we're seeing. University of Pennsylvania criminologist Aaron Chalfin says Chicago is part of a national drop in violence. Homicides are down, you know, pretty convincingly. Like 2023 has been a great year. Other crimes are not down. Other crimes, uh, in, at least in many cities, cities that I've seen data for are up. For instance, Chicago has seen its sharpest spike in robberies in at least 20 years. That robbery trend is unique to Chicago. 
but motor vehicle theft has soared in many other cities. That's a puzzle. Uh, usually all crimes kind of move in the same direction. Chalvin says it's all the more reason not to draw any conclusions from the year-over-year -year changes, and it's a sign that no one should be taking a victory lap just yet. On Chicago's west side, they aren't declaring victory, but the frontline anti-violence workers believe they are building something that's going to last. Tavares Harrington works in the city's Austin neighborhood. Harrington says they've been able to negotiate a number of non-aggression agreements between different warring street groups. These guys are not, you know, trying to be aggressive with each other. They're not sliding or trying to uh, intimidate each other in no type of way. And if we do hear of someone uh, maybe riding through that area and making them feel intimidated, then we'll give a call or get that in place and straighten that out. It's that persistence and deep connection with the guys closest to the violence that Harrington hopes will keep murders and other violent crimes on the decline in 2024. For NPR News, I'm Patrick Smith in Chicago. And that story was reported with Andy Boyle and Andy Grimm of the Chicago Sun-Times. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Now we're going to hear about one family's displacement amid the Israeli offensive in Gaza. That offensive continues intensely, with Israel saying it seeks to destroy Hamas wherever it is. An airstrike yesterday killed at least 21 people, injuring women and children, according to health officials. This was in the south, where thousands of civilians have fled. NPR's Kerry Khan brings us the story of one man and his family who are struggling to survive in southern Gaza, with reporting from NPR's producer Anas Baba, who is in Gaza. From Rafah city, from Tali Sultan neighborhood, it's already 10 a.m. In the southwest corner of the Gaza Strip, near the border with Egypt, producer Anas Baba says tents are everywhere. One cluster catches his attention. Seven families sheltering on a small dirt field behind a gate. One of them is Mr. Nidal Al-Barrawi, 47 years old, with his uh, family of 10 members. Mr. Nidal is going to start to tell us exactly how was his day in Rafah? This is a nightmare I can't wake up from, says Nidal al-Barawi. He leans against a tall pile of thin mats and folded blankets inside the cargo van, where he and most of his family now sleep. The Israeli military ordered his part of northern Gaza to evacuate a couple months ago. Before that, he lived in a three-story home and enjoyed life as a farmer. My wife used to prepare me coffee and I then used to go to work. I would feed my cows, then go and take care of the rest of my farm. Al-Barari says he also grew apricots and avocados. He would nap midday, then spend evenings with friends and relatives. Everything, everything we needed was right by us. Now that is all gone. 
Much of northern Gaza has been leveled by Israel following Hamas's attack on October 7th. Hamas killed around 1,200 people and still hold more than 100 hostages in Gaza. Health officials in Gaza say more than 21,000 Palestinians have been killed, and the UN says nearly 2 million are displaced. Al-Barari's family is among some 100 people, a few in cars, most are in tents. There is no running water, no toilets. He says he's been sick for weeks. Here by the coast, it's cold. I feel I'm a hundred years old. I'm only 47. Back home, people would tell me I looked only 30. I feel so fragile now. Fragile, since he's lost 30 pounds. His wife, too, is getting skinnier. A year ago, I bought my wife a ring. To get it off, she would have to use soap. Now, it falls off her finger. He tries to water a small olive tree next to the van to remind him of home, but water is scarce. His 14-year-old daughter spends every day in line for a few gallons, not enough for the whole family. UNICEF says children displaced by the war in Gaza get less than half the water needed to survive. His seven-year-old son is dehydrated, and Al-Barari worries he will die. He says he thinks of death all the time. I only wish that if I'm to die, I die with all my family. I don't want to die and leave them. Or worse, he says, for him to be the only survivor. With producer Anas Baba in Gaza, I'm Carrie Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Raw weather continues tonight. Not too much cooler than it is right now, about 40 overnight. Tomorrow, gray skies stick around. Showers off and on, inching to the mid-40s. Sunday should be brighter. Sunny skies, about 40 again. Some clouds on New Year's Eve, but then sunshine for New Year's Day Monday. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. This is 90.9 WBUR, 44 degrees in Boston. Some special thanks to some of the unsung heroes who bring you WBUR as all things considered. You hear the results of their work every day. Editor David Green, mixing engineers Paul Kahlo and Zoe Vangenhoven, and managing producer Jeff Cohen also. The uh, engineer, Pat O'Connor, we're thankful to all of you. This is 90.9 WBUR, 44 degrees in the Boston area. The time is 549. WBUR supporters include Burton's Grill and Bar. With modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress, and a looming election. Devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times, and they require serious journalism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. So make your year-end contribution by Sunday, December 31st at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As the year comes to an end, we want to recognize the many people who work to get this show on the air to you every day. That's right. So we asked the All Things Considered staff to share with you some of the stories that they will remember most from 2023. I'm Lauren Hodges, a producer on All Things Considered, and I can't stop thinking about Teresa Calderas in Colorado Springs. She's 64 and one of the millions of Americans who was able to buy more food with her extra SNAP benefits during the pandemic. And she kept saying, I can eat when I'm hungry now, and that she was actually able to paint her nails again because they stopped cracking. Her favorite color, by the way, was this pale pink called lingerie. But when the emergency declaration ended earlier this year, she went back to her normal food stamp payment, just $23 a month, meaning she had to give up the healthy diet she'd gotten used to and the extra energy it gave her. Unfortunately, I have no hunger. And it's not a good feeling, you know, buying a gallon of milk. A lot of people don't really give it another thought, but there are lots of us out here who can't buy a gallon of milk when we need it. So I'm just going to have to go back to not eating very much, about a meal a day. Hi, my name is Elena Burnett, and I'm a producer on the show. This summer, I traveled to Chicago with Juana and our editor, Courtney Dorning, for a profile on Brian Wallach, his wife, Sandra Abravaya, and their foundation, IMALS, which helps patients navigate what is currently a fatal disease with no cure. Brian was diagnosed with ALS in 2017 and was told he might not live more than six months. Brian and Sandra's advocacy is obviously inseparable from their desire to survive, but we wanted to ask what he thought about when he thought about the future. Sandra helped translate for him. I think about being 70 and sitting on the front porch with Sandra, sipping lemonade. I learned so much about ALS and patient advocacy and working on the piece, but what has stuck with me the longest is the love story at the center of such extraordinary resilience. My name is Jonas Adams, and I'm the director of All Things Considered. Producers Kat Lonsdorf and Noah Caldwell worked with our host, Juana Summers, in putting together my favorite segments this year, a five-day series dedicated to hip-hop in honor of the genre's 50th anniversary. One of my favorite parts is where DJ Jazzy Jeff talks about the importance of hip-hop videos finally landing on MTV in the late 80s and how it helped the culture become permanent. I always feel like that time was a very pivotal moment. Companies were trying to figure out, do I need to get into the hip-hop business? Is this something that's even going to be here in the next three, four years? And then I remember when you started to say, you know what, I think we're going to be here. I'm Brianna Scott, and I'm a producer on the show. If I had to pick a segment I really enjoyed working on this year, it has to be my Saw piece. I'm a huge horror fan, and I got to travel to New York City to interview the cast of Saw the Musical, the unauthorized parody of Saw, which reimagines the first Saw movie as a gay rom-com. This musical is so bisexual, it is beautiful. Andrew Kyra plays Dr. Lawrence Gordon. Right from the start in 2004, you were having fan fictions of these two men because you're locking two guys in a room together. It's like, <laughs> will they kiss? Like, of, of course they're gonna kiss. They're in, a, they're in a room together, but they can't kiss because they're chained to the wall. <laughs> it's a raunchy, campy, chaotic, joyful musical. And I love bringing fun, weird, niche stories to life on All Things Considered. 
I'm Tinbid Aramis, and I'm an editor here at All Things Considered. One memorable thing I worked on was a book interview for Aaron Hamburger's Hotel Cuba. It's a story about two sisters who immigrate to Cuba to flee religious persecution in Europe. It's loosely based on the life of his grandmother. And what I love about this is how he was able to use his creative outlet to explore his family's history and to honor the people who came before him. I relate to my grandmother as a creative artist, and I just loved imagining how she might look at different materials and try to design them and what her design aesthetic might be in the same way that I, as a writer, think very carefully about the kind of language that I use, the kind of characterization and setting that I try to create with my words. Hi, I'm Gabriel J. Sanchez. I'm a producer for All Things Considered. And my favorite story this year was from back in January when I joined a family that was at the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles. They were touring the Irecho Project, which is an exhibit featuring a book filled with every name of every person sent to the U.S. internment camps during World War II. Two members of the family found their own names printed next to over 125,000 other interned Japanese Americans. I'm glad that my family members who were present got a chance to see the book and the names and the exhibit so they have a better sense of what Francis and I went through, what my parents went through, my grandparents went through. It was so nice because they were passing on their own family history and honoring thousands of others. Hi, my name is Michael Levitt, and the story that stuck the most with me this year is an interview I produced with Ari Shapiro and the iconic Indian chef Raghavan Iyer. We booked Iyer to talk about the release of his new cookbook, but this conversation also happened at a time when he was very, very sick. And at the end of the interview, Ari asked him this. Well, this is a question that I've never asked a guest in 20 years of doing interviews. Mm -hmm. Have you decided what you want served at your funeral? Yes. Uh, you is. have. <laughs> What's the menu? Oh, well, well, guys, all Bobby Street foods. <laughs> foods that I grew up with and, and foods of my childhood. Ari, you know, you're making me hungry. <laughs> and I just found it so moving that despite the fact that he was nearing the end of his life, he was still so humorous and found time to laugh. Raghavan Iyer died about a month after this interview aired, and when we followed up, his publicist told us that at his memorial, his loved ones did in fact get to enjoy the delicious food that he loved so much. Some of our All Things Considered colleagues highlighting their favorite stories of 2023. Our team also includes editors Ashley Brown, Christopher Intagliata, Justine Kennan, Catherine Fox, Patrick Jaron Watananan, Jeanette Woods, and Sarah Handel. And we have producers Alejandra Marquez Hanse, Avery Keating, Connor Donovan, Emma Klein, Erica Ryan, Fatma Tanis, Gurjeet Kaur, Gustavo Contreras, Halicia Hubbard, Jason Fuller, Janaki Mehta, Kai McNamee, Kat Lonsdorf, Karen Zamora, Lee Hale, Lena Mohammed, Matt Ozug, Manuela Lopez Restrepo, Mallory Yu, Mark Rivers, Megan Lim, Mia Venkat, Noah Caldwell, Tyler Bartlam, Vincent Acovino, and Patrick Wood. 
Our administrative assistant is Wendy Johnson, and our technical directors are Stu Rushfield, Quasi Lee, and Valentina Rodriguez Sanchez. Adam Rainey, Bridget Kelly, Courtney Dorning, Oliver Dearden, and William Troop are our managers. Sammy Yenigan is executive producer, and honestly, that is just a sliver of the folks who work to bring you this program every day. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Friday evening. In sports, no rest for the green. Tonight, the Celtics are back at work at the Garden to host the Toronto Raptors. Celts are at the top of the Eastern Conference. Toronto is 12th, 7.30 start time tonight. In the forecast, light rain off and on this evening and overnight tonight, right about 40 degrees. Tomorrow, reaching the mid-40s tops, heavy on the clouds. Then for Sunday, sunshine should emerge for the final day of the year, back around 40 degrees. A fair share of clouds on New Year's Eve Sunday night. Then New Year's Day Monday is looking partly sunny, still about 40 degrees. 44 now in Boston. The time is 5.59. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Supreme Court will soon be facing new and complex issues that could affect the outcome of next year's presidential election, many dealing with cases relating to Donald Trump, including the states of Colorado and Maine, knocking Trump's name off the ballot. Our story is coming up on this Friday, December 29th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, cryptocurrencies staged something of a comeback this year. Now many companies are hoping the Securities and Exchange Commission will approve a fund that tracks the price of Bitcoin. It would potentially open up the door to lots of people who say, look, I don't buy this entire crypto story, but Bitcoin sounds interesting. And at libraries across the country, lots of people checked out Lessons in Chemistry, Prince Harry's memoir Spare, and more books which you'll hear about later this half hour. This is WBUR. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration says Russia carried out its largest air assault on Ukraine since the war broke out more than two years ago. Russian forces used drones and missiles to strike cities and infrastructure across the nation, including the capital, Kyiv. NPR's Paulina Litvinova reports at least 30 people were killed and more than 150 others were wounded in the attack. 
Ukraine's Air Force says it shut down most of the incoming missiles and drones, but some still found their targets. A Ukrainian military official said on Telegram one missile hit a residential area in the town of Smila. Several large Ukrainian cities were attacked, including the capital Kyiv, as well as Dnipro, Lviv, Odessa and Kharkiv. Residential buildings, hospitals, a shopping mall and other civilian infrastructure were hit. Ukraine's defense minister Ustemomerov wrote on Facebook that Russia stockpiled missiles for many months to launch these strikes. Polina Litvinova, NPR News, Kyiv. Courts in Maine have less than a month to decide whether former President Donald Trump can appear on the state's primary ballot in 2024. Kevin Miller with Maine Public Radio reports the state's top election official on Thursday removed Trump from the ballot, citing the 14th Amendment. Maine joined Colorado in removing Trump from the ballot over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results and his role in the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Democratic Secretary of State Shanna Bellows says state law obligated her to consider Trump's eligibility. And she says the evidence shows he violated the Constitution's prohibition on insurrectionists holding office. I am mindful that no Secretary of State has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I'm also mindful, however, that no presidential candidate has ever before engaged in insurrection. California's Secretary of State came to the opposite conclusion hours later. But the issue appears headed to the U.S. Supreme Court. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Miller in Augusta. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has vetoed legislation banning transgender minors from receiving gender-affirming care and preventing transgender athletes from taking part in girls' and women's sports. The Republican governor says he weighed both sides of the issue and decided to break with his party. I think it's very important that we all remember that all those on each side of this issue sincerely and truly believe their position best protects children. These are truly complex issues. Republicans say they're considering a veto override. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Crews will start to set up stages tomorrow morning for Boston's first night celebration Sunday. WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports the annual festivities usually happen in Copley Square, but take note, this year they'll be right around Boston City Hall. Copley is closed for renovation, but families looking for New Year's Eve activities can still find everything at City Hall Plaza. T.K. Skandarian is on the planning team for First Night Boston and says the festivities will start Sunday morning and will run all day. Ice sculptures, stage, uh, we have a parade at 6 o'clock that will go from here to Boston Common. We have fireworks at 7 o'clock over Boston Common and fireworks at midnight over Boston Harbor. Other activities include improv shows and a carousel on the Greenway. Organizers are encouraging people to take the tea into the city, which will be free after 8 p.m. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A group of researchers at the Harvard Graduate School of Education are exploring whether generative artificial intelligence technologies can be a useful teaching tool. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, when it comes to helping to provide student feedback, there are positive results. 
The study focused on a graduate level class where students were tasked with creating new educational tools in a maker space. Typically, writing individualized feedback that keeps students engaged and encouraged is time consuming. Study author Guyan Kelly Sung says overall, students responded positively to the AI augmented feedback. People felt like these AI augmented messages were spearheading like a caring classroom culture. And what we found was that statistically, it had a significant impact on the sense of student belonging and their levels of burnout. The tool was less effective for students who reportedly struggled. Sung says this study was limited, but her group hopes to expand on what they learned. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Massachusetts will use new federal funding to protect endangered North Atlantic right whales. The State Department of Fish and Game announced today the first installment of $23 million to support research and monitoring of the species. It will also pay for new technology for lobster traps to reduce incidents of whales being harmed. 44 degrees in the Boston area. Dank weather for tonight and for the start of the last weekend of 23. Tomorrow should be mainly gray and drizzly. Highs of about 46. Sunday, sunshine gets in its last licks for the year. Bright skies about 40 degrees. New Year's Eve may be cloudy and chilly, but then the sunshine returns on New Year's Day Monday. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Supreme Court is being asked to consider an existential question about Donald Trump. Should the former president be disqualified from the ballot next year because of his role in the January 6th riot? That is just one of the disputes the justices may be forced to weigh in on in 2024. With us to talk about the other cases is NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson. Hey, Carrie. I want to. So, Carrie, last night, an official in the state of Maine booted Donald Trump from the Republican primary ballot following a similar ruling from a court in the state of Colorado. How is this issue making its way to the Supreme Court? My issue said Maine's Secretary of State has disqualified Trump from the GOP ballot because she found he engaged in insurrection for the purposes of the 14th Amendment. The Republican Party in Colorado has already asked the high court to weigh in after a Colorado court also yanked Trump from the ballot this month. Voters in that state are asking the justices to move very quickly. Time is of the essence here because there's now a conflict among states that have considered the idea of whether Trump should appear on the ballot in 2024. Right. And Carrie, what are the threshold questions for the Supreme Court? That provision of the 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War to keep Confederates out of office. One big question is, does it apply to the office of the president? Does Congress need to take action or can a state official disqualify a candidate on their own? And does a former official need to be convicted of a crime before any of this applies? Legal scholars disagree. Here's how election expert David Becker put it to Morning Edition today. It's essential that a clear ruling is issued by the United States Supreme Court as soon as possible, not just for uh, the voters, but also for election officials who are starting to print ballots up for the primaries, and also for the Republican Party that needs to know whether or not it has a candidate that is qualified to serve as president of the United States. And Kerry, former President Trump's other legal problems could also wind up on the court docket in the next couple of weeks. Tell us what you're watching. Special counsel Jack Smith, who's prosecuting Trump for allegedly trying to overturn the last election, had asked the Supreme Court to fast track a key issue in his case, 
Trump says he has absolute immunity from prosecution because he was president at the time of January 6th. The Supreme Court rejected the effort to leapfrog a lower court and decide that issue now. But after the appeals court in D.C. rules, maybe as soon as the end of January or February, one or both sides may ask the high court to consider the issue again. Now, it's possible the court will just let the appeals court ruling stand, but many justices have been interested in the scope of presidential power, so they may want to take up the case. And this all matters because the trial has been set for March. If there's a long delay, it's possible the trial may not start until the heart of the summer which coincides with the Republican Party convention. That's right. And Carrie, I mean, the Supreme Court has weathered a lot of controversy this year after ethics scandals involving some of the justices. Public opinion about the court has plunged after the court took away the right to abortion last term. And now all of this, it's going to put the court back in the spotlight, right? Absolutely. The court may try to stay out of some of these issues. It could duck that immunity question and also rule narrowly in a separate case about what constitutes obstruction of an official proceeding. That's a charge prosecutors have used 300 times against Capitol rioters, and Trump faces two related charges as well. But it's hard to see how the Supreme Court stays out of election matters altogether. It's in a position where it might decide the outcome of the next election, and public confidence in the court is a lot more negative now than it was in 2000, when the court stopped the recount of that election in Florida and handed the White House to George W. Bush. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thanks as always. My pleasure. It's been a wild ride for cryptocurrencies in 2023. One major twist was the conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried on money laundering and fraud charges. He was once one of the biggest names in crypto. Now he might spend the rest of his life in prison. And law enforcement is going after some of his rivals. Despite this crackdown, crypto is staging something of a comeback. NPR's David Gura is here with a look at where things stand in the world of crypto. Hey, David. Hey, Ari. What else shaped this year in crypto? You know, it's been an incredible couple of years. Going back to 2022, I'm sure you remember crypto seemed to be everywhere then. When you're watching TV, there were all these ads for crypto companies. One of the big ones featured Larry David, the comedian. It was for the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, and it aired for the first time during the Super Bowl. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. Well, that line uh, now seems pretty prescient. FTX collapsed spectacularly in November of 2022. Yeah. And this year, it's been going through bankruptcy proceedings. Its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, was found guilty of fraud and money laundering. And this is what U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said outside the federal courthouse in Manhattan after that verdict. The cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. This kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time. And we have no patience for it. You know, this was a pivotal moment in crypto, a dramatic fall from grace for Sam Bankman-Fried, someone who was once called crypto's golden boy. And, you know, a lot of people thought that blockbuster trial, that verdict would shape popular perception of digital currencies, that it would kind of reinforce what law enforcement and regulators have been saying, that this is an industry that's rife with fraud. Well, turns out, Ari, that verdict was not crypto's death knell. Yeah, tell us about what happened. Believe it or not, after that conviction, we saw this huge rally in cryptocurrencies. The price of Bitcoin has tripled this year. It's now above $40,000. Turns out a lot of crypto true believers and Bitcoin investors saw that conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried as a good thing for crypto. A fraudster faced justice and crypto got rid of a bad actor. 
This year has been a boon to companies that have survived a market downturn that has come to be called a crypto winter. Coinbase, for instance, another big cryptocurrency exchange, has surged in 2023. Its stock is up around 400% this year. And then there's this hope, driving prices higher, that the SEC could approve a new ETF. These are funds that track things like a group of stocks or an index. A common one tracks the S&P 500's ups and downs. Well, several companies want to start ETFs that would track the price of Bitcoin. And I asked Kevin Warbach, who's a professor at Wharton, why that would be significant. It would potentially open up the door to lots and lots of people who say, look, I don't buy this entire crypto story, but Bitcoin sounds interesting. And if the SEC approves it, a Bitcoin ETF would be another way into crypto, Ari, and it would also give crypto some more legitimacy. Huh. So where do you think things are headed in 2024? Of course, I don't know for sure. But clearly, if the SEC approves that new investment product, it would be another big moment in crypto's still pretty short history. What we do know is that regulators and law enforcement are going to continue to go after crypto. Just a few weeks after Sam Bankman-Fried was convicted, the Department of Justice announced a major settlement with Binance, which was... Once one of FTX's competitors, Binance's founder, now former CEO Cheng Peng Zhao, who's better known as CZ, pleaded guilty to violating anti-money laundering laws. So we have two of what were the biggest names in crypto now facing prison time. I asked the acting assistant attorney general, Nicole Argentieri, what law enforcement's approach to crypto is going to be in the new year? And here's what she told me. Thanks for that question. I would say stay tuned, but we expect to continue our robust enforcement. So that means in 2024, there's likely to be more of this tension we've seen this year between crypto trying to stage a comeback and the government continuing this clampdown. Okay, my last question is, why do these crypto titans all go by their initials? SBF, CZ, what's going on? That is a great that's a great question, and it doesn't make it any easier for me to keep track of them. NPR's David Gura. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ari. Public libraries around the country have put together lists of books most borrowed by readers in 2023. NPR's Netta Ulibi tells us more. Let's start with the country's biggest library. Hi there, I'm Emily Pullen. I'm the manager of reader services for the New York Public Library. We had Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus as our number one checkout. The novel tells the story of a chemist in the early 1960s who's dismissed because of her gender. She ends up hosting a cooking show. We're live in five, four. It was made into a series on Apple TV+. Welcome, viewers. This is Supper at Six. Lessons in Chemistry was also the most borrowed book at public libraries in Seattle, Boston, and Cleveland. However, in Topeka, Kansas, it was not even on the top ten. Readers there preferred mysteries, thrillers, and what's getting called romanticy. Romanticy is this new phrase that they've come up with for romance and fantasy. Deb Lambert directs collections at the Indianapolis Public Library. She says romanticy is big there, too, with books like Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. It was also among the most borrowed in Charleston, South Carolina, and Louisville, Kentucky, thanks in part to fan videos on TikTok. They have to be endgame, right? They have to be. Their dragons are mated. Not every library lists its most borrowed books. And there's no big list from, say, the American Library Association. Most borrowed, says Deb Lambert, can get sliced into fiction, nonfiction, young adult, audio. And also, whether it was an ebook or a physical book. The number one most borrowed ebook in 2023 nationally on the app Libby was a memoir. Once upon a time, this was going to be my forever home. Prince Harry, Duke of Sussex, reading from Spare about his former estate. When my wife and I fled this place in fear for our sanity and physical safety. 
I wasn't sure when I'd ever come back. Library users have turned not just to e-books, but e-magazines. Deb Lambert says their rise in popularity is dramatic. Our New Yorker e-magazine was actually the most checked out title of everything online. In 2023, in Indianapolis, the New Yorker was bigger than spare, bigger than lessons in chemistry. By a pretty good amount, yep. Lessons in Chemistry had a total of 6,300 checkouts, and New Yorker Magazine was 6,800 checkouts. There's an important function to these most borrowed lists, librarians say. They remind us there's something wonderful to read every year for everyone. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR on this Friday evening. Coming up on Marketplace, people are drinking less wine and French winemakers are taking note. Business news starts at 6.30. On Wall Street, the main indices lost some ground on this last trading day of the year. The Dow fell just a small fraction. S&P was down nearly three-tenths of a percent today. Even so, the S&P rose nearly 25 percent this year. And the Nasdaq today lost more than a half percent. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. And Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at StoneZoo.org. Sunday, December 31st, is your last chance to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Tonight, the Celtics are back at work at the Garden to host the Toronto Raptors. Celts are at the top of the Eastern Conference. Toronto is 12th. 7.30 start time tonight. Dank weather for tonight and for the start of the final weekend of 23. Tomorrow should be mainly gray and drizzly, high of about 46 degrees. Sunday sunshine gets in its last licks for the year. Bright skies, just about 40 degrees. New Year's Eve may be cloudy and chilly, but the sunshine returns on New Year's Day Monday. 44 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As we head into the new year, maybe you have a few things on your to-do list that have been there for months. Well, we have some tips to help you clear through that list and maybe even jumpstart those New Year's resolutions. 
NPR Life Kits host Mariel Segarra spoke with some experts about how to write and tackle a to-do list to make it work for you. So to-do lists, they're a tool we use to get stuff done, right? And I mean, how good does it feel when you finally cross off that task that's been hanging over your head? But warning, to-do lists can also become a trap. They can feed our impulse to stay productive at all times. The thing is, we don't want to make a better to-do list just so we can indiscriminately accomplish more. It's about doing what matters. That's Angel Trinidad, the CEO and founder of Passion Planner, a company that makes digital and paper planners that show people how to break down their goals into day-to-day actions. You can access a free version of the planner on their website. So takeaway number one in making a better to-do list, as Angel was saying, decide what matters to you in this moment. Because wouldn't it be great to fill our to-do lists with intention so the stuff on them is actually helping us get somewhere? One way to do this is to come up with a big-picture goal, something that's especially important to you right now, something that would make a big impact in your life. Angel calls it a game-changer. What is that one thing that would make everything easier, better? And that answer is different for everyone. To come up with that goal, ask yourself some questions. What do I want to be? What do I want to experience? And what do I want to have? Maybe you want to be more present in your physical body. If so, your goal could be to run a 5K. Or maybe you want to give back to your community. So your goal is to volunteer once a week. First, though, I want to acknowledge this goal-making approach might feel kind of top-down. Like maybe you don't have a big-picture goal in mind yet. And that's okay. Oliver Berkman is a journalist and author. He wrote the book 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. That's how many weeks are in the average human life, by the way. And he says another option is to let your current to-do list guide you. There are various exercises, aren't there? Like you might know the one that involves asking why five times in succession. For instance, my to-do list says retile kitchen floor. Oliver says I could work backwards from there. So like I want to retile my floor. Why? To make that room look better. Why? And, you know, eventually you hopefully get to something that feels like a bedrock value of your life. And if you don't, maybe that's a sign that it's a kind of a zombie project that could be easily abandoned. Once you have a sense of your priorities and your goals, it's time for takeaway two. Pick a system, a way of making a to-do list that works for you. One question to get you started, paper or digital? Angel says some people like paper to-do lists because they're concrete and tactile. And what I also love about to-do lists on paper is when you cross it off, there's nothing like it. Also, paper comes to an end. When you put it digitally, there's no end. You can keep going. And I think that's when to-do lists get really overwhelming. It's kind of like a cluttered room. When it's too much, then you just avoid it completely. Digital has its pluses, though. If you make a to-do list on your phone, it's searchable and quite possibly more organized. Another question to ask yourself, how do you want to structure your to-do list? Some people prefer a kind of calendar approach with the hours of the day listed. I like to time block on my agenda and it's literally making a square of time for the task. So, you know, Thursday from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., I'll be working on my novel. Wednesday from 7 to 8 p.m., I'll be at soccer practice. This method is called time boxing, and it can be a good way to understand how much you can realistically tackle in a day since you're visually blocking off time for each of your to-dos. That kind of awareness gets you thinking, am I spending my time in a way that makes sense for me and what my intention is for my life? But again, this is about finding a system that works for you. For Oliver, trying to plan this way 
feels too rigid. I've never really found it works to make a very rigorous association between a task and the time of day because my moods, my responsibilities as a parent, random emergencies that arise, you just can't sort of say, I'm absolutely going to be doing this thing between 3 and 3.40. You have to with appointments and things, but if you try and do it with everything, very quickly it feels imprisoning. It feels like life isn't, isn't any fun anymore, even if you're working on things that matter. So another option is a straight-up list of tasks. Call me old-fashioned, but that's what I'm sticking with. Remember, by the way, whatever you pick, it's just a starting point. An important thing here is to feel like your systems for organizing your life can evolve constantly. Now, once you have a system in mind, take away three, it's time to fill your list. Let's start with an acknowledgement. There are some things you just have to get done. The tasks of daily living. Refill that prescription. Buy groceries. Get more toilet paper. Those tasks can go on your to-do list, but they don't necessarily have to. There's this thing within the productivity world called the two-minute rule. And it's if it takes less than two minutes, just do it right then and there. You know, it's not worth spending the bandwidth to... Write it down, hopefully remember it, hopefully do it. Okay, so we're meeting our daily needs. Now we want to reflect our bigger goals on our to-do list. Like maybe one of mine is to redecorate my apartment. The thing is, and this is what trips a lot of people up, that's not a to-do list item. So often things hang around on our to-do lists and we don't get them done because we're not even expressing them in a doable form. Let's break this down. Which parts of the apartment do I want to redecorate? Well, definitely the kitchen. I want to replace the tile floor. Still not actionable enough. We're going to have to go even smaller. Call the hardware store for an estimate. Now that's doable. Go look at tile. That's doable. Order the tile. Also doable. These are the kind of things to put on your list or in your planner. Oliver says you also might consider limiting your to-do list to four or five doable tasks at a time. And you're not going to add a new one to that list until you've moved one away, thereby freeing up a slot. That can help you stay focused, because you can't do everything at once. And that's takeaway four. Pick something to let go. You're going to be not excelling on a whole load of dimensions. If you're going to be like a really good parent and a really good employee, then you're probably not going to be able to be a really good, I don't know, runner of triathlons. So as you're making your to-do list with your big picture goals in mind, pick something to fail at too. To say, well, okay, instead of constantly being dismayed when I realize that I'm not superhuman, I'm going to make a decision about a few things in advance that for this season of my life, I'm just not going to be doing. So like, you know what? I'm not going to be keeping a tidy, beautiful house while dealing with a newborn baby and working full time, you know. And he says, when you choose what to fail at ahead of time, you're really changing your mindset. Because months from now, when you see your messy house, maybe it won't actually feel like you're failing. Instead, you could see it as a reminder of your values in this moment and what you've committed to. I think that a lot of us seem to go through life feeling like we're in sort of productivity debt. You know, we've got to work really hard today to try to pay off the debt by the end of the day. But remember, Oliver says, there's nothing you need to do to earn your right to exist. That was NPR's Mariel Segarra speaking with Oliver Berkman and Angel Trinidad. LifeKit wants to help you make and keep your New Year's resolution. Check out LifeKit's Resolution Planner. You can choose areas of life you'd like to focus on, and the tool will guide you to some of LifeKit's best tips on the topic. 
You can find it at npr.org slash new year. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. The Celtics will be looking to keep their at-home winning streak alive tonight as the Toronto Raptors come to town. Celts have won all their 15 home games. Tonight's tip-off is at 7.30. The Bruins are on garden ice tomorrow night. In the forecast, dank weather for the start of this last weekend of 23. Tomorrow should be mainly gray and drizzly, right about 46 degrees. Sunday, sunshine, bright skies, about 40 degrees. The New Year's Eve Sunday night may be cloudy and chilly. And then the sunshine returns for Monday. As you support organizations that have real meaning in your life and throughout your community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund helps become something a lot bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it will help us all. Give by Sunday, December 31st at WBUR.org.